Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. We are so glad you're here. If I've not gotten the chance to meet you, my name is Tim, and we are delighted that you are here with us this morning. I want to open with this question. How many of you would say that you like cold showers? Okay, okay a couple, a couple people, maybe in the summer. All right, God, that's fair. Well, about a year ago, I was getting ready in the morning, and I walked into the bathroom, and I turned the shower on, and I, like many of you, probably stick your hand under in the water, just kind of feel the temperature, right? And, and it was kind of cold, so I adjusted the temperature a little bit, and it was still cold, and I waited, and I waited, and it was still ice cold. So I just thought, okay, either A, I don't know how to control the temperature in my own shower, or something is wrong. And my first thought is, great, the hot water heater has just died. So I turn off the shower, I walk downstairs, I go down into the basement, I take a look at our hot water heater, pretending like I know what I'm doing, and I notice there's an off-on button, and I push the button, and a red light comes on, and I go, oh, I guess it was off. And so I realize, okay, it's probably going to take at least an hour for this thing to do its magic and run hot water through our pipe. So I am likely not getting a warm shower today. So I put on some extra deodorant. I run the risk of being smelly because I do not like cold showers. Well, the next morning, I do the same thing. I get up in the morning. I go into the bathroom. I turn on the shower. I put my hand under the water. And this time, it is scalding hot. I mean ridiculous hot, like melt your skin off hot. And I, again, try to adjust the temperature again. And it is so hot. And I realize, okay. I think somebody smaller is downstairs messing with this hot water heater. So I turn it off. I go downstairs. I gather all of my kids, and I take them. I say, guys, we're going on a field trip. We go down to the basement. I show them the hot water heater. I go, guys, this thing creates hot water. Please do not touch it. Don't push any buttons. Don't turn any knobs. Just leave it alone. And I explain to them what has happened in my life the last two days. Leave it alone. At that point, my oldest, Juliet, rats out Edmund like that. She begins to tell me that a few days ago she saw Edmund, who is now four, was down there messing with it. You see, here's something about Edmund. He likes to push buttons, turn knobs, and look at things that light up. He doesn't care if there's cold water or hot water. He doesn't care if the water melts my skin off my bones. He just wants to push buttons. You see, here's the thing that I, I've learned is that small decisions lead up to big consequences. Small decisions lead up to big consequences. And so Edmund, turning knobs, pushing buttons, was changing the temperature of the water. You know, we, we see this all the time, don't we? I mean, if you go out to lunch once a week, you might spend $10. But over the course of a month, you're going to spend $40. And over the course of a year, you're going to spend $480, right? And though that money and that time, that all adds up. And so today we're talking about the fight for your life. We're in the middle of a series, The Fight for Your Life. In week one, we talked about the fight against our mind, 
Then we talked about the fight against our mouth. And then last week, we talked about the fight for the next generation. And today, we're talking about fighting against sin. But not just sin. It's the habits, those small decisions that lead up to big consequences. So how do we fight against sin? If you have your Bibles, go to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the text on the screen behind me. If you're having trouble finding it, just use your table of contents. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of the backstory. You see, the last verse in the book of Judges summarizes everything that's been taking place. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the book of Judges was written during the time where there was no king. Everybody was doing what they wanted to. They were doing what they saw was right in their own eyes. You see, the 12 tribes of Israel, they were spread out and they were dispersed. And they were supposed to live life without a king because God was supposed to be their king. And they began to do things their own way. They didn't like being told what to do. They did what was right in their own eyes. So Israel continued to do evil. They continued to chase after other gods. And throughout the book of Judges, there is a cycle that I want to show you. All right. So first, it begins with Israel forgetting about who God is and forgetting that God has delivered them. Starts with forgetting, and after they forget, they do evil, they do sinful things, they chase after other gods, and they experience disaster. They disobey, they experience disaster, and God delivers them into the hand of their enemy, and things get really, really hard. And after they experience those consequences, they finally just cry out. They ask, God, please help us. And after they cry out, God sends a deliverer. He sends a rescuer, someone like a judge to come and deliver them out of the hand of their enemy. And then they forget again. And all throughout the book of Judges, they continue to go through this cycle over and over and over again. And that's the backstory of what's happening in Judges chapter 13. All right, Judges 13, let's start reading in verse 1. Again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless. Unable to give birth, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because this boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So, God comes to this couple, maybe older in age, trying to have kids, 
for years, maybe even decades with, with no success at all. And he comes to them and he says, you're going to have a baby. And this baby is going to be used as an instrument, as a conduit to deliver Israel from the hand of their enemy. Because they've been enslaved. They've been caught up in this cycle over and over and over again. And then notice, they're the ones who say they keep doing evil right in front of his eyes. But we're going to dedicate this boy to God. And there's three parts of this Nazarite vow. No wine, no razor, no touching dead bodies. Literally nothing from the vine. No beer, no wine, not even Welch's grape juice. Nothing. And you can't eat of anything that is unclean. No dead bodies. And don't cut your hair. This boy is to be solely dedicated to the work of God. And that's the vow that was put on Samson. Now, God is going to do something really amazing, miraculous through this boy. So God is setting the stage to bring about a rescuer for Israel. So jump down to verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtov. So the Lord actually blesses him and he says, I'm going to begin stirring something inside this boy. All throughout the book of Judges, every time Samson does something incredible, it's because the Spirit of God rushes upon him and he does the work in Samson's life. Samson is just a regular guy that God is using as an instrument, as a conduit, as a vessel. Now fast forward a bit. Samson is much older now. He's starting to look for a wife. He wants to get married. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. Now remember, Israel was always doing what was right in their own eyes. And here Samson sees this good-looking girl and he sees her. And he's like, yeah, she is the one. He saw her there, young Philistine woman, verse 2. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Mom, dad, she's the one. I want her. You've got to arrange this marriage. Make it happen. She is the girl. Now, there's nothing wrong with this girl. But God did not want them to spend time with the Philistines because he knew if they intermarried, they would likely begin to pursue and worship other gods or other idols. God wanted Israel to be solely devoted to him. And so was it wrong? Yeah, it was wrong. It, it certainly wasn't wise. But Samson said, I see her and I want her. I don't really care about being dedicated to God. Verse 3, his father and mother replied, isn't there a more acceptable woman among your relatives, among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Literally, she is right in my eyes. So Israel and Samson have a lot of parallels 
They continue, both of them, to do and seek after what is right in their own eyes. He says, this feels good to me. This is what I want. This is what I've been desiring. This is what I'm chasing after. And Samson has a controlling lust problem. He's all consumed, all dominated by his desires. He sees something. He wants it. He needs instant gratification. So he chases after that. But I want you to notice where Timnah is. Let me show you a map. So there's Jerusalem. There's Zorah. There's Timnah. It says that he went down. Let me read you a couple of verses. These aren't going to be on the screen, but just, just listen to these. Verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah. Verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah. Verse 7, then he went down and talked with the woman. Verse 10, now his father went down to see the woman. Geographically, it's not really down. It's more west. And the author of Judges is not necessarily talking about geography here. He's saying he went down, he went down, he went down. That Samson's trajectory, he's going down. Spiritually and morally, when we see that repetition over throughout this chapter, the author of Judges is saying Samson is making one bad decision after another, after another, after another, and he is going down. And so small choices, they can lead to huge consequences. And I think that he is, really is a stand-in for Israel. There's so many parallels. Think about Israel came from Jacob. And Jacob's parents, Abraham and Sarah, were older in age. They couldn't have kids. It was a miraculous birth, a, a barren woman who was able to get pregnant. The same thing is true with Samson. And they both have a, a moral code put over them. Israel has the law they're supposed to live under. And Samson has the Nazarite code. And they both do what is right in their own eyes. But you know what? You and I, we're not so different from Samson, are we? Now, maybe you haven't killed anybody. Maybe you haven't slept with a prostitute. Maybe you haven't um, have an, an anger problem. Maybe you haven't gone and binge drank at all. Or maybe you haven't burned down an entire village like Samson will. But how many of us, last week, we made a decision that we wish we could take back. We thought about things we wish we could unthink. We made decisions because we thought, this is right in my eyes. This is what I want. This is what I want to do. This is what I desire. We are people that are driven by desires. And so before we judge Samson too harshly, remember, you and I, we're not so different, are we? Maybe we've made different choices. We've experienced different consequences. But Samson's story is supposed to give us a picture of Israel's story. Then verse 7 says, then he went down and he talked to the woman. He liked her. She is right in Samson's eyes. God is going to use this man for his purposes. He is an instrument. He is a conduit in the hands of Samson. Then Samson is on a walk one day and he's attacked by a young lion and the spirit of God rushes upon him. He tears this lion to pieces. He goes about the rest of his walk. And then later, a few days later, he comes by, sees that dead lion, 
and inside the body of the lion is a beehive. He reaches into the dead body, reaches into that honey, grabs some of that honey, which is super gross for, like, normal people. But for a guy who's not supposed to be touching dead bodies, there he is scooping honey out, and he's eating it. So first of all, the gross factor is off the charts. But here is a guy who is chasing after what is right in his own eyes, going after a woman that he shouldn't be going after, touching a dead body that he has no business touching. And then he wants to get married, so he plans this seven-day banquet, this seven-day bachelor party. It's a beer keg wine party. And the Bible doesn't say that he went there and drank, but for seven days to have a big beer party, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, there's a chance that he probably drank. But he has no business touching alcohol at all. And so he is one more step on this slippery st- slope. Small decisions stacked on small decisions. He is walking down this slippery slope. But I want you to see how it all ends. Chapter 16. He eventually marries this, this lady. It turns out really, really badly. In fact, uh, after he marries her, he goes, they have like this, this fight, and he goes back to the house, and the father-in-law has given his wife away to another guy. And he's like, yeah, but you can have her sister. And Samson's like, no. And he totally loses his mind. He kills like 30 people. And then he has like the most crazy, bizarre plan of revenge ever. He takes 300 foxes. I have no idea how you catch 300 foxes, but he does. He gathers them all. He puts torches in their tails, and he sends them out, and he burns down their crops and their grain and their village. This guy has so many anger problems, I can't even begin to scratch the surface of it. But one decision after another, Samson is making a complete mess of his life. So here's how it ends. Chapter 16. Verse 1, one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. Come on, guy. When he went to spend the night with her, the people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and they lay in wait for him all night in the city gate. They made no move during the night saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Some time later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Interesting thing is this word night that is repeated four times is the word halilah. It rhymes with? Delilah, all right, you guys are Hebrew scholars already. So he went to spend the night, or he went to spend the Halilah with her. They waited for him all Halilah. They made no move during the Halilah. Samson lay there only until the middle of the Halilah, and then he falls in love with a woman named Delilah, okay? The author of Judges is saying, okay, it's like one of those, those horror movies where someone's like, I'll be right back. You're like, no, you're not. And, and the music just gets really dark, like dun, dun, dun. Like he, he marries 
and falls in love with this lady named Delilah. It's like, okay, man, everything you've done has been leading up to this. All of those small decisions, marrying that woman from Philistine, going after that lion and, and, and taking out that honey, killing those 30 men, seeking revenge out of anger. He is making decision after decision after decision that has led him here. All of these small decisions come with huge consequences. So here's the first principle I want you to see today. The habits you allow in your life today are going to determine who you become tomorrow. The habits you allow in your life right now, those conversations you have that maybe you're telling white lies or you're gossiping or the time you spend on your phone or the internet looking or browsing or doing or the lack of problem solving, those habits that we have today in our life, they determine who we will become tomorrow. They all add up. Every time you make a decision, it's like a domino falling over. Did you know that a domino can knock over another domino that's one and a half times its size? And progressively, those dominoes will get bigger and bigger. If you have 29 of those progressive dominoes, they will eventually knock over the Empire State Building. If I lost you here, let me show you what that looks like just with 19 dominoes. Every single choice we make leads to another one. They're like dominoes. They just fall into each other. What are the choices? What are the habits that you are making right now? Do you remember the thought that I gave you, the, the quote I gave you the first week we talked from Stephen Covey? He says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. This is exactly what Samson has been doing. All through his life, he's been sowing thoughts. He's been sowing actions. He's been planting them in the ground. And he is reaping a character and a destiny. This is who he has become because all of those dominoes have led to this. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 say this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whatever... So whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. You and I, we go through our life. We put our finger in the ground. We drop a seed, cover it up. Put our finger in the ground, drop a seed, cover it up. We put our finger in the ground, drop a seed, cover it up. Put your finger in the ground, you drop a seed, you cover it up. Every single day, 
is filled with choices, filled with dominoes. We are planting things. We're planting habits. And out of that is going to grow and cultivate something into our life. Our life is not just a bunch of random choices. So what habits have you been planting in the soil of your heart? In this chapter, you see that Samson is coming to the end. That word night is, picture, is a picture of darkness. The end is at bay. And everything is coming to this point. His final hurrah. Verse 4, sometime later he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him. So we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. I don't know how many of you have 1,100 shekels of silver in your wallet right now. But uh, there was understanding of, of there was five lords of the Philistines, so they each brought 1,100. That's 5,500. In today's currency, that's like $15 million they are bribing her. That's big money. They're bringing millions of dollars to bribe Delilah to bring Samson down. And she's going to give it her best effort Verse 6, so Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Verse 7, Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Verse 8, then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried and she tied him with them. So there he is, all bound up. Verse 9, with men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he just snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to the flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. It was obvious that he was just going to break right through that. But she was trying to figure out, how is this guy so strong? That part was not obvious. So it wasn't like this guy was a bodybuilder. It wasn't like he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger or, or Tim Sullivan. Like, he just it was a regular guy, right? We have no idea how big this guy was, right? He could have been 6'5 and 130 pounds, dripping wet. He could have been like 4 foot by 4 foot, just kind of like, right? we have no idea. Right? His strength wasn't obvious. It was because the Lord was working in him. All of that was coming from God. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me, how can you be tied? He said, well, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then the men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped those ropes off his arms as if they were threaded. He just rips through those like wet toilet paper, 
that rope didn't stand a chance. He is toying with her. He's playing with her. In chapter 15, he allowed people to tie him up with new ropes, and that didn't work. So in chapter 16, he's like, hey, try, try new ropes. Wink, wink. That might work. And it doesn't. He is flirting with temptation. Another choice, another decision. He's getting closer and closer and closer to complete destruction. His life is going to completely unravel. Small choices lead to big consequences. Verse 13, Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me, lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, well, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with a pin. Again, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke from the sleep and pulled up the pin from the loom in the fabric. It's like Samson hasn't seen this movie before. He keeps going along with it, and I have no idea. Why is he doing this? Why is he even telling her anything? Well, because guys are stupid, that's why, all right? Just, just going to be honest, okay? He's not that smart. He apparently thinks she's pretty cute, but that's about it. Verse 15, then she said to him, how can you say I love you? Like, really? Come on, lady. I don't know. When you won't confide in me, this is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, yep, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. Oh, come on, man. No razor has ever been used on my head. He said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, pause, he just goes to sleep with no worries, no thoughts, just closes his eyes, falls asleep on her lap like it's any other day. Come on. She called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Verse 20 is, is probably sh the most shocking verse I've ever seen. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done. I'm just going to keep on doing what I always do every single day. I'll take care of this. Shave my head, no big deal. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to a grinding grain in the prison, but the hair on his head began to grow again after they shaved it. 
It's interesting because when he took those foxes and he set them on fire, he burned down their grain. Another interesting thing is that this is not me. This is just that culture. But in that culture, women were the ones who ground up the grain. And so it's kind of ironic that they put him to work grinding up the grain that he had burned down, making him do a job that a woman would typically do, and they're punishing him. They're humiliating him. Everything has come to a screeching halt. He pursued women out of his own lust, out of his own interest, doing what is right in his own eyes. He ate honey out of a dead animal, doing what is right in his own eyes. Killed people in anger, doing what is right in his own eyes. Sought revenge, doing what is right in his own eyes. Sleeping with a prostitute, again, doing what is right in his own eyes. And then breaking the vows of wine, dead bodies, allowing his head to be shaved, thinking, I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done. I'm just going to keep on going. I'm just going to assume that I have the power. But every time, like Samson, here's the truth. Sin promises freedom. This is a, sin promises freedom but brings about bondage. Every single time we make those choices, we make those decisions, it's screaming, it's promising, it's yelling at us. This is going to feel good. This is going to be great. You're going to be free. You can do whatever you want. And before you know it, you are just all tied up, locked up in shackles, enslaved to the decisions and the habits that you and I have cultivated over days, over weeks, maybe even over decades, wondering why I can't break free of this habit. Why I can't break loose of this pattern in my life. And it starts with those choices and those habits that we've been doing, we've been cultivating all throughout our life. Edmund made some small changes, and he drastically changed the temperature of the water. But what is it that changes our spiritual temperature? It's those choices and those habits. Here's my final question for you. Are your habits moving you towards freedom or towards bondage? Are your habits moving you towards freedom or towards bondage? If, if you and I were sitting together at, at Jane's Diner and we were having coffee and breakfast and just hanging out, and I was talking to you about some of your habits and some of your choices I might lean over to you and say, hey, if God was sitting here right now, and I say, God, what are you most pleased with so-and-so right now? God, what are you most pleased with, with Tim right now? What would you say? And you might think about it for a little bit and think, oh, maybe, maybe he's pleased with that, or I hope he's pleased with that, or I hope he's pleased with that. And we'd talk, and we'd come up with some things that God is probably pleased with in your life, and then I'd lean over again and say, okay, now, now what if I said to God, okay, God, what are you most displeased with and then right now? What would you say? So here's the big challenge. What's the one thing that you need to do this week? 
What's the one conversation that you need to have this week? What are you going to do? What are the habits that are starting to tie you up into bondage that need to be taken care of? Because small choices lead to big consequences. Let me pray with you. Father, we are amazed by your grace. Recognize that there are some things going on in our lives that are not right. There are patterns. There are habits. There are temptations that continue to come into our lives. Father, they've been wreaking some really bad consequences. Some of us are experiencing that right now. The pain and the hurt, the self-sabotage that happens. For some of us, we feel trapped. We have no idea what to do next. And I ask that you would give us your grace and your mercy in this time of need. You would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.